Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to another edition of the Baseball America Prospect Handbook Podcast. J.J. Cooper and Ben Badler here with you again, as we are every week. And we're going to talk some prospects. We're going to talk some big leaguers. We're going to talk some international rules today. Kind of the spread of stuff that we normally talk about. Before we do that, I do want to remind you, go to BaseballAmerica.com right now. Great time to subscribe. We have different time periods you can subscribe for. Whatever time period you pick, I would suggest subscribing right now because we're going to have we already have a lot of draft coverage up, but we're going to have a lot more draft coverage coming down the pipe. And we also, in addition to that, have all of Ben's July 2 coverage coming. You know, there's a lot up now. There'll be a lot more coming as well for there. So just go to BaseballAmerica.com and you can subscribe and consume all of it. And there's a lot to consume. But Ben, we'll get to July 2 on another one of these podcasts. But today, we're going to start with, uh, we're, we're going to start at the big league level and one of the things I think we've both enjoyed watching uh, so far this year is is, is kind of how, how the Mets have been able to bring along some of their young arms. Most notably, Noah Syndergaard is up in the big leagues, and to be to be blunt, doesn't look like he's going to be headed back down to the minors anytime soon. When you look at where the Mets are right now when it comes to starting pitching, pretty enviable position, is it not? Yeah, I mean, I, I love the farm system they have. I love the, the young talent they have throughout the organization but especially on the on the pitching side when you when you have a, a rotation like that and you have you know guys coming up like Noah Syndergaard and Steven Matz on the way and you know even lower in the system a guy like Marcos Molina uh, these guys are all potential front of the rotation arms and I think you could make a case that Syndergaard right now is at least a mid-rotation starter and, and has a chance to be a number two and, and possibly even a, a number one starter. I mean, if you saw his his last start, this guy was sitting, you know, 95 to 98 miles an hour with above-average movement. He, he was up to 99. He was pitching inside. There, there were a ton of uncomfortable swings at this guy's fastball. He was. He's working inside, up in the zone, driving it downhill uh, with that steep angle he gets from that big frame. Uh, and he's got a, a plus curveball, too. That, that's a swing and miss pitch. And, uh, you know, the changeup is uh, the, the Brewers got some hits on his changeup. It, it wasn't a, a bad pitch. I, I, that's certainly the pitch that needs the most work for him right now. But I, I, it certainly looks like it has a chance to be uh, at least an average pitch in time. Uh, and then you combine that with the fact that he just throws a ton of strikes too, and I think it's this is a guy who's got all the makings of a, a front front of the rotation starter. And you just hit on it; they have a good problem right now because I, I would argue that Stephen Matz is ready to to help him out as well, and there's just not really rotation room right now for him. It's not often that a team in contention you, you don't trade away. I know there's been a lot of talk of you know should they trade away John Neese or, or things like that. Generally, you, I, I feel like you don't trade away rotation depth during the season because rotation depth can become 
necessary rotation health very quickly. I, I think back to the Dodgers just last year, and you turned around, and it was all of a sudden they were looking for starters where it looked like they had seven or eight when the season began. But they the, the Mets right now, what stands out to me is, is that they can take in the rotation an injury or maybe even two and still be okay. And there's obviously a lot of teams that can't say that. Yeah, that's uh, – <laughs> There's no such thing as having too many starters. Uh, we have five starters. How are we going to fit all these guys in? Eventually, somebody is, is going to get injured. I, I mean, it's <laughs> they've, they've needed uh, guys this year already. There's somebody else is going to get injured again. So having, having that depth, having that ability to, to have a guy like Steven Matz as the, you know, the, uh, an option who's ready right now in AAA, obviously that's uh, that's that's not a bad problem to have. And the best, the best slash worst case scenario, the worst case scenario for Mets, but the best case scenario for the Mets is is if somehow they do have an amazing run of uh, help this year, and you say, okay, well they don't need him in the starting rotation. Well, if you need to bring him up as a reliever late in the year to help you in a, a playoff push, that's not a bad problem to have. Uh, again, I think the rotation for the Mets. <laughs> is in very, very good shape right now. I don't know so much about the lineup for them. And, I, yes, we're going to pick on the thing that you probably think we might pick on, which is, is okay, I'll ask you again, Ben. Is Wilmer Flores a big league shortstop? No. <laughs> in fact, I, I don't think that there's a shortstop in the major leagues right now who who is a worse defender than Wilmer Flores. And that is... That's not Wilmer Flores's fault. <laughs> if you put any player who belongs at third base uh, at best, at best, take him. Yeah, this is not a guy who, when when he was in the minor leagues, it's not like we were saying or, or any scout was saying, you know, oh well, let's, you know, I, I think he's got a chance to play shortstop. No, this guy is a twenty runner. He's you know, slow first step, very limited range. Uh, he's always had a, a knack for hitting. Uh, it's, he's not hitting much this year, but uh, the, he's always been an offensive-minded player. And the question mark was always, well, can he can he play third base, or is he going to maybe even have to move over to first base eventually? And the Mets, for some reason, have decided that. This is the guy that they want to go with at shortstop. So they're playing him extremely out of position. I, I think he has enough, uh, you know, with his with his arm and with his hands that are solid enough to to play third base. But if you want to keep him at shortstop, uh, I think that's a it's a huge mistake, and it's it's putting pressure. On his bat, what I mean by that is that I, I think it's taking away focus. I mean, th- this guy has to focus so much on the defensive side of things and playing shortstop that it's taking away from his offensive game because he's just playing so clearly out of position. No, I, I do think, and, and I do think that the Mets are going to have some options. I, I think that right now, I think Matt Reynolds, who's in AAA, is probably a better defensive player. All the scouts I've talked to, he's a better defender than Wilmer Flores at short. Um, you know, you look down the love down the line, the Mets have a number of 
shortstop prospects coming up through the organization. So there are going to be some options down the road. I, I do follow. I, I think it's really not as much that the Mets feel like Wilmer Flores is a shortstop as they felt like, well, he's the best option we have. And <laughs> that's a very different answer. But you look at it so far, and, and the thing for Flores that's always he has has He's had a little more trouble with this this year is is, is just making the, the routine play, uh, which in the past, that's the one thing he's been able to do. And this year he's had a little bit more trouble with that in the early going. But I, I, I agree with you that I do wonder partly how much of him being stretched defensively kind of affects him a little bit offensively as well, because I do think he can hit. So it'll be interesting to kind of keep an eye on that. But I, I do think that, uh, again, the Mets have some options, whether it be Matt Reynolds whether it be, I, I don't think that you really you're you're look ready to see Chikini there later in the year or anything like that. That's moving probably a little too quick, but and obviously at the same time, uh, you know you can always speculate on some kind of blockbuster. The uh, the the Cubs sure have a lot of shortstop options, and the Mets sure have a lot of pitching options. So at some point, if you wanted to say that there's a logical match there, maybe there is. Um, uh, again, it's worth remembering Javier Baez, who admittedly had a, a pretty rough big league debut last year, but Javier Baez has been pretty solid in, in AAA and, and is playing a lot of shortstop. You've got Baez, you've got Castro, you've got Russell. That's And if you want to throw Alcantara when you talk about guys who can also play second for the Cubs, I guess you could throw Tommy LaStella in a lesser role in that too. There's a whole lot of guys that the Cubs have for those middle infield spots and and. Uh, a whole lot of pitchers for the Mets right now that would look pretty good in the uh, in the Cubs rotation. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's other, you know, there's certainly trade options out there. I think the, you know, if if the Mets see themselves as as contenders this year, which which I do, I think you look at the start that they're off to. You look at the the pitching that they have and and the rest of that roster. I think they they do have a chance to contend this year. So I think shortstop has to be a a place where they have to upgrade at some point uh, this season because keeping Flores there uh, much longer, I just, just I just don't think that's tenable. Okay, well, so we're going to move on now to the minor league side, and uh, uh, we're going to jump in on a, a with we put out for some Twitter questions, and one of the Twitter questions we got back, I want to find it here. Sorry for the the delay, but we got a. Uh, and I really do apologize. I'll, from Pat Pratik Kumar at Grimorin189, G R I M O R E N 189. He tweets, uh, Who's a prospect whose struggles concern you the most this year? And we thought about that, and that kind of led us to thinking that we wanted to talk a little bit about John Gray, the uh, Rockies right hander who's in AAA. And Robert Stevenson, the Reds right-hander who's in double-A. Both are among the more prominent pitching prospects in the game. Both of them have been, to put it bluntly, pretty awful so far this year. Um, John, John Gray has an ERA that looks like he's a, uh, it, it looks like Boeing's next airliner. Uh, anytime that your ERA starts with a 7, you, uh, 775 right now, so uh, for him. And his FIP is 5.15, so it's not... It's better, but it's not a ton better. And then Robert Stevenson has been, uh, in his return to triple, uh, to Double A, he's back in the uh, Southern League for the second, really the kind of the third year. He finished 
two years ago there, spent all of last year there, 27 games, and he's back there this year. And right now, Stevenson has a 5.45 ERA with a 5.12 FIP, and he's walking a very disconcerting 6.2 batters per nine. So I'll have my answer in a minute, but Ben, I'll start with you. Ben, who, whose brutal start concerns you more? Uh, both are, like you said, they're both extreme. Uh, they're, they're both concerning in, in different ways. The, the bigger one for me is Jonathan Gray. And yeah, look, he's, he's pitching in Albuquerque. So that's, that's always about as tough of an environment as you're going to get for, for any pitcher. So I think there has to be some, some leeway there, but at the same time, this is a guy who I, I, I was pretty concerned about him coming into the year because when the Rockies drafted him out of Oklahoma a couple of years ago, this is a guy who was pretty regularly touching 100 miles an hour, uh, getting it up even a little bit higher than that at times, uh, had, a, had a plus slider working for him, and, and he got into pro ball and right away pretty much looked as advertised just dominated the the Cal League which you know is a, a pretty difficult environment for hitters or excuse me for pitchers uh but he really blew away that league right away uh, i wasn't there very long but it was it was impressive and, and the stuff was still there and then last year he went to double a and he was he was okay he was he was throwing strikes, but he wasn't. He didn't have that same dominant stuff that he showed in college. It was still good stuff, but not great stuff. the The velocity wasn't quite as high as it was uh, when he was at Oklahoma. Uh, which look, <laughs> his velocity was a little bit down. I mean, he wasn't hitting a hundred, but it was still a a plus fastball. But it just wasn't the the dominant. The dominant heater that he was showing when he was at Oklahoma, his slider was, it was still solid, but he, you know, he still tends to get uh, get around the ball. Uh, and then, yeah, then this year, you know, he's still he's still around the strike zone. It's not like he's he's wild, but I, I just don't think the the stuff that he had that he was in college is, is the same as it is right now. And it's not a guy who has pinpoint command either so it, it, it's not like he's a a, a great pitchability guy you can uh, get by without uh you know can, can get by without his best stuff so to me he's a bigger concern than than stevenson for me okay i'll i'll, I'll flip that i'm more concerned about stevenson right now and i'm concerned about both as well but i do think that gray when you look at and you make some good points on Gray. Gray, though, I do think when you look at his struggles this year, they are somewhat a factor of where he's pitching. You mentioned it, it is pretty brutal where he pitches. He's also, you look at it, he had a start in Las Vegas that was terrible against, you know, against the Mets AAA club. Uh, he had a start in Reno, which was terrible. And that, those two, and then again, as you said, his home park's not exactly a uh, fun place to pitch either. He's been a little better lately, and... I, he's generally around the zone. What concerns me about Robert Stevenson is is that there the stuff is still there. It's a little less right now, and I think part of that is, is because he's missing his target so much. But 
I, I went back today and just watched a, a couple of Robert Stevenson starts in, in prep for this, and he's missing terribly. I, I, he's not missing his spots by an inch, two inches. It's not he had a pitch that you know leaked back over the plate. He's missing as in batters are diving out of the batter's box because on a two-strike or a three-ball pitch, he tries to throw it, and the fastball ends up at their head, and he's not trying to throw at their head. He's bouncing pitches. And the best way I can put it is, is his delivery right now is so out of sync. If you're looking for the positive, it reminds me of what Archie Bradley looked like at the end of last year. Archie Bradley at the very end of last year could not – his last outing of the year last year was frightening in how little he could control his fastball. And he kind of got away for the offseason, comes back, and, hey, he seems to have that fixed. Well, that's what Robert Stevenson's doing right now. And he's doing that, uh, unfortunately for him and unfortunately for the Reds, on a pretty regular basis. If you look at it, he had a a start uh, against the uh, uh, against the uh, the Mariners Double A club in in Jackson that he walked four and two thirds of an inning, didn't make it out of the first. But he, he followed that up. He he walked seven uh, against the uh, the Cubs Double A affiliate as well. There haven't been a whole lot of times this year where he's had that combination of stuff and control. Now, he's still a very young high, high school you know, draft power pitcher. A lot of times these guys lose it and then it comes back. It really, you can almost say that a part of it really does just depend on do their arms stay healthy and can they work through these problems. So there, I, I'm not really by in any way to say, you know, run screaming from Robert Stevenson, it's never going to come together. That being said, I know no other way to say it. He is further from the big leagues right now than he was two years ago at this time, even though he was an A-ball, because he's really kind of hit a, a wall at double-A, and he's just going to have to throw more strikes. And a lot of times this year, he's been more in that low 90s range, not that 97, 98 at best that you saw when he was really pitching with a lot of confidence and pitching with a lot of uh I say kind of a necessary arrogance that he had earlier in his pro career where he knew I'm a guy to be feared and I'm going to control this game from the mound. He's not pitching like that right now. Right now he's pitching like a guy who doesn't know where his next pitch is going to go. And when you're pitching like that, it is really, for one thing, it really takes his best weapon, which has always been, he's always had a really good breaking ball. It kind of takes that away in a lot of ways. He's, if you're throwing less than 50% strikes, and that's something that, that, that Robert's done some this year, you're not getting into counts where you say, okay, now I'm going to really uncork a really good breaking ball. It's, it's been a bad combo for him. I, I'm, I'm, I am a little concerned. Gray has been a little bit better lately. I, I guess you could say Stevenson's been a little bit better lately as well, but still not really that where you want to see him. And those are two guys who... <laughs> It goes back to that reminder that for, with pitching, it's a very thin line between going really well and going really poorly. Yeah, like you said, it just seems like as soon as he got to double A in 2013, uh, the control just seemed to almost immediately disappear. This is not a guy who, you know, throughout earlier, earlier in his career, not that it's been that long of a career, but you know, when he was in, in low A, when he was in, you know, the Cal League very briefly, he never really had big problems throwing strikes. But like you said, the 
the mechanics just seem really out of whack right now. And, and you know, what what gives me some hope is that he has a, a history of being able to to throw a lot more strikes. But where he is right now, uh, he, he's just really out of rhythm and, and really out of sync with his mechanics. And that's that's led to, I mean, yeah, it's you know, I'm concerned about Gray uh, a little bit more, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about Stevenson, too, at this point. I, I think there's some hope that he can write the ship mechanically, but, but right now he's just really out of whack, and, and that's really hampered his control. Uh, the, the best way to put it is, is that I remember watching his first start last year, uh, five innings, one hit, 11 Ks, one walk, at Pensa, you know, with Pensacola. He was a lot further along right then than he is right now. I mean, right then he was pitching with confidence. He was dominating. Right now he is really, as you said, I mean, it's just not in sync. He's really struggling kind of to find himself right now. And, again, when you talk about a young power pitcher, that light bulb can go off and then it can come back on really quickly. It's one of those things that what's funny is, is that he could be this bad for the next month and then all of a sudden something clicks and all you turn around he's in triple a in two months from now or three months from now but you you do have definitely have some reason to be concerned right now and for both these guys it's something where you you look at it right now and and they're not ready to help their big league clubs and there was some thought that maybe they would be able to do that uh some point before too long this year and I would say with either of them right now, they're again, they're probably a little further away than they would have been in kind of expected to be at the start of the year. But we, we also wanted to go in, you know, we got, if we got Ben on the phone, we want to talk about international baseball at least somewhat. And so there's been, as you expected, and as you've kind of alluded to on this podcast before, there's been a lot of movement already, uh, a lot of names popping up uh, who kind of keep showing up from Cuba. But I want to ask you about, the MLB rules for uh, for Cubans and how there's very much a uh, a giant divide between the I don't know where I put it, but the haves, the guys who can sign any kind of contract they want, and the have-nots, which get lumped into the international uh, bonus pools. So Ben, what do you see? I mean, uh, are these rules working the way they should work, or, or should there be some tweaks to them? Uh, so they're definitely not working. <laughs> um... And and one of the you know one of the problems it's it's creating is that uh, the the registration rules more so than anything right now I think are or maybe not more so than anything but uh, that to me is is one of the rules that really jumps out as something that doesn't seem to make sense in terms of what MLB's policy is because. The rule is that not specifically applied to Cuban players, but applied to all international players, is that if you are going to be eligible to sign during a given signing period, which begins on July 2nd every year, you have to be registered with the commissioner's office by May 15th. So if you are a prospect in the Dominican Republic and you're old enough where you're you're 16 and you're going to be eligible to sign on July 2nd by your uh by your birth year uh you have to be registered with the commissioner's office uh which you just have to basically have your your name in there and and have the official paperwork uh sent in 
So this applies to uh, this rule started, <coughs> excuse me, this rule started a few years ago. So it has been applied to anybody who's been born after uh, September 1st, 1995. And that's never really been an issue before as it applies to Cuban players because even, you know, the youngest guys who've been signing, like Yoan Moncada, who's uh, about to turn 20 years old, he, he he was even born, uh, you know, before that cutoff date. So he, the registration rules didn't even apply to him. Uh, the problem now is that some of these really young Cuban players who are coming over, uh, like a lot of the guys who played on the Cuban junior national team, uh, Yusnier Diaz, who was one of the top 20 prospects in Cuba this year, Sionel Perez, a left-handed pitcher who just left Cuba, uh, who was not on the top 20, but uh, is a you know, pretty interesting guy. He's got a right. fastball up to 94 miles an hour and, and led Cuba in, in ERA last year. Uh, these two guys both left Cuba, but uh, you know, definitely for, for Perez, this guy, there's, there's no way he, has, he couldn't register so he's going to have to wait now for another, let's say, 14-plus months now to be able to sign because he's not going to be eligible to sign until July second, two 2016, even though there's no way <laughs> that he could have registered himself to be able to sign because he it would have been illegal for him to do so because he was still living in Cuba, and MLB requires you to be a resident of another country uh, before you can register with the commissioner's office. So, you know, th- these guys, through no fault of their own now, are, are going to have to wait, you know, 14, 15-plus months just to be eligible to sign. And, it, you know, MLB's policy is that we don't grant exceptions to anybody who... Uh, has not registered, and I think that's a policy that makes sense to apply to players from the Dominican Republic and players from Venezuela. Because look, maybe you're from uh, you know some very uh, out of the way town, and, and uh, maybe you weren't much of a, a prospect, or your, your trainer. If he even had a trainer, didn't didn't know what he was doing, and and didn't register you in time. Well, okay, that's it's it's tough to hear, but I I think MLB's policy there is is understandable as it applies to them. I think if they don't have that policy, uh, you could see players trying to uh, you know sneak in into the process, and right. and there, there's some more susceptibility for. Uh, for fraud there. So to have a blanket registration policy for them, uh, I think that that's understandable. But for the Cuban players, there's no way these guys can register it. And there's even language in the CBA that that says, you know, if there is a, you know, I I think it's a compelling justification, uh, compelling reason why they could not have registered there might be some leeway there, but MLB's policy has been to say, no, uh, we're not going to do it. Not for you, uh, Yadier Alvarez, not for 
uh, for anybody else. So uh, it's maybe it's possible that somebody eventually files a grievance against the commissioner's office and changes things uh, through through that avenue. But right now it's it's a bit puzzling to me why MLB continues to apply this rule in this way to Cuban players, especially because, I mean, think about Sionel Perez, who's, who's, who just left Cuba, and now he's going to have to wait until July 2nd, 2016 to sign. This is not a guy who came over uh, and, you know, he's not in the United States, uh, at least not to my knowledge. Uh, I mean, that certainly wouldn't make any sense. He wants to become an international free agent, so these guys tend to go to uh, you know Haiti and, and then the Dominican Republic, or they they go to Mexico a lot of times. This is not a guy who comes over with any money in his pockets. He didn't make any money in Cuba. He's not going to be making any income. He's not going to be working for or getting any paycheck for for the he's next gonna year. He's going to go to Indy Ball almost. Well, he's he's not going to go to. What's going to happen is he's just going to be indebted to. Who he's he's already going to be indebted to whoever got him out of Cuba, and he the more expenses he runs up, the more I'm sure he's going to have to pay them back. The more time, you know, the longer these guys, the longer MLB makes these guys wait to sign, the longer they're going to be with people who they probably shouldn't be with, guys who are. You know, in some cases, criminals. I mean, the longer that MLB forces these guys, forces these players to sit on the sidelines, the the worse off they are. It just, and it's not like if they, it's not like if MLB changed their policy with regards to registration and saying, look, we understand that you're a Cuban player, you could not have in any way registered yourself. So, yeah, we're going to grant you an exemption to sign. It's not like there's much drawback for MLB because he's going to be subject to the bonus pools either way. I mean, you could say he's going to have more leverage, I suppose, to to negotiate with teams that uh, are going to go over their bonus pool during the current signing period because they're not going to have a a chance to sign him if, if the bonus goes over uh, $300,000, which I think is safe to say it, it probably will in his case. Um, but he, he's going to be subject to the bonus pools either way. So their MLB still puts him in their, their cost control mechanism of the bonus pools. So why they insist on keeping this policy in place is, is, is very strange to me. Well, I, again, because it seems like there's a logical answer to this, which is, it's not hard to put an exception in there simply for players who come from Cuba. Again, if your concern with this is if you're MLB is, is you want to make sure that a player in the Dominican or Panama or Venezuela can't essentially, uh, you know, it, there can't be some subterfuge where they kind of lay low and, and get a bigger bonus because they work in con- conjunction with a team or anything. That's not the situation with Cuba. As you said, these guys from Cuba – they can't register, <coughs> and it makes no sense. <coughs> Excuse me. It makes no sense when you talk about a guy 14 months 
is a massive amount of time when you talk about a young baseball player. And that makes a massive difference in his development as well. And they can't catch up on that. I, 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 you're, you are completely right. I mean, what would you see as the, the logical solution? Like you said, just give Cuban players an exemption to this rule. Clearly, uh, the relationship between Cuba and the United States makes Cuba uh, – Cuban players are, are just unique. If, if, like I said, if, if you want to apply this blanket, no-exception policy to players from Panama, from Colombia, Dominican Republic, Venezuela, everywhere else – uh, all these other countries that fall under the international umbrella, that's fine. I, I, MLB needs time. There's a lot of age fraud that still goes on in Latin America, uh, especially in the Dominican Republic. I understand that MLB wants to have these guys registered and be able to investigate as many of them as they can on a pre-contract basis, and that's fine. That's understandable, but Cuban players are not – these are not the guys that they need to worry about investigating them uh, from a, an age or, or an identity standpoint. Those are – their ages and their identities are, are really, in almost every case, pretty easy to to determine. These guys have fairly long track records going back to the uh, Cuban junior – Junior National Leagues. I mean, Hector Oliveira has, has been playing, uh, traveling on <laughs> on Cuban teams on a Cuban passport since he was, I think, like 11 or, or 12 years old. There's there's long, extensive records of these guys. The, the Cuban government is not trying to fake their ages so that they can uh, look younger and, and more appealing to major league teams the way that uh, you know, trainers or, or other people in the Dominican Republic and, and Venezuela and other countries are, are trying to manipulate players' ages to to make them look younger and more appealing to scouts. So I think MLB could do could just change this their just change their policy. That that's all they have to do and say, look, if you're Cuban, we know you're in a, a different scenario where you couldn't register, so you're still going to be subject to the bonus pools. We're not going to change that. There's nothing special about that. But, yeah, all right, we're going to grant you an exception where you're going to be allowed to sign even if you were you know, an 18-year-old kid and you weren't registered because you legally could not have registered yourself. Well, or the other part of this is, is that make that, you know, okay – the key part here also seems like it's that you have a deadline you have to register by to be eligible. Well, even if you say that we're going to do the same standards of, of kind of verification and all that, but just say we can clear you later. You may not be even eligible to sign on July 2nd, but when we clear, we verify your, your information, which again, as you said, with Cuban players is often much, much easier to do. At that point, you'll be eligible. Would that be a problem? Yeah, I mean that's basically that's basically the system for for everybody else is that for for the Cuban players who are older is you know you leave the country you establish residency in, in a third country like Mexico or uh, or Haiti has become popular now uh, because that process it's, it's a lot easier to get residency now in Haiti uh, than it is in the Dominican Republic so guys will go to the Dominican Republic and then 
you know, technically get their, uh, their residency in Haiti, but you get your residency in a foreign country. You, uh, then, there, then are allowed to sign in the eyes of the, the U S government. So you apply to MLB for free agency, uh, MLB, you know, really all, all they're doing is check. They're not going into Haiti and investigating whether your residency documents are legitimate. They don't actually go and, and do any investigation like that. They don't, uh, they don't invest the resources in, in doing that. Frankly, I don't think the teams care whether a player's uh, residency documents are no. legitimate or not. They just care that the player uh, is the age that uh, he says he is, which really is not a concern uh, at this point with the uh, Cuban players. It, it, um, it was in the past, but at this point, it's it's really not. Um, so they all they're doing is just determining whether the player is subject to the draft or they're subject to the international system. And for whatever reason now, MLB still seems to be taking, you know, two months in some cases. Look at, look at Hector Oliver again, the, the delay between when he applied for free agency and, and when he became a free agent, uh, you know, Guillermo Heredia, the former center fielder on the Cuban national team is going through that same process right now. They seem to drag their feet for whatever reason. I'm not really certain why that is, but uh, for whatever reason, it still seems to be taking a, a couple of months for MLB to declare these guys free agents, uh, even though it really should not be that complicated or, or that long of a process. But yeah, that's that's basically the system for everybody else. You get residency in another country, you apply for free agency, and then MLB makes you a free agent. Um, you know, so it, whether you know you become a free agent right on July second, or you become you know a free agent later during the signing period, uh, it, that's you know that the timetable is is whatever it is. But this this policy that completely precludes a player from signing until July 2nd next year. I think that's, that's, that's pretty extreme to me. And wrong. <laughs> I mean, yes. there's, just, yeah. there's not really a, a good defense of it. It the best defense of it is a shrug of the shoulders and yeah, that's not ideal, but that's what the rules are. Am I mischaracterizing it? Yeah, no, that's, that's, you put it correctly. It's, it's, and it's damaging to to the players. I mean, I, look, I, I know some people see, oh, all these guys are are signing for for huge money, and oh, you know, oh, what, you know, uh, you know, I don't feel bad for them at all. You know, whatever, whatever your feelings are, that's that's fine. But one, not all these guys are are signing for big money, and when these guys do come over, they don't have any money in their pockets. They have no way to make any money they're living in countries that are and are with people that are frankly dangerous people and MLB can say you know we want to limit the involvement of uh, human trafficking and limit the dangers that Cuban players have to go through to just to get to the major leagues well if they're serious about that and they want to to limit some of the danger that 
and the hardships that Cuban players have to go through, uh, they can just back up their talk by taking some action and saying, okay, this registration policy is putting Cuban players in greater hardship. So we can make a simple solution and, like you said, just change the policy as it applies toward Cuban players, but they're not – for whatever reason, and I, I've, you know, I've talked to people in the commissioner's office, I haven't gotten a good explanation. I don't know why they don't change it, but, but by not changing it, the talk that they make about trying to make it easier for Cuban players uh, to ease some of the, the hardships and the risk factors that they take – going from Cuba to get to the major leagues, uh, this policy is just making it even more difficult for them and, and giving them even more hardship and more risk for them to, to get to Cuba to finally get to sign uh, because of this policy. Right. The, the, to sum it up, the best thing you can do for that, there's other things, but one of the best things is, is to get guys who, get out, who come out of Cuba from out through that limbo of no income and essentially having to kind of depend on, you know, handlers, whatever you want to call them, to kind of provide for them. And significant debt. And, and recruit significant debt. The quicker it can be get to the point where they are signed with a team and have income coming in, the better. And this is the opposite of that. Yeah, the, the 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 faster you can expedite the process that gets them, you know, out of the hands of of their handlers in in these countries and, and gets them into the hands of a major league team, uh, you know, from an off-field perspective and then just and then from an on-field perspective too of just you know, not not that they're just sitting around. I mean, they're they're working out, they're they're training, but the faster you can get them to a major league team and, you know, facing major league hitters or, 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 or facing minor league hitters or uh, just playing real competitive baseball, the better it is for, for everybody involved. Agreed. Agreed. And hopefully we will see a change at some point. But so far, it doesn't make any sense. But, well, we're going to wrap it up at this point. Uh, we got an issue to finish up today and tomorrow. we got all kind of draft coverage. I know you've got a lot of July 2 stuff to work on, Ben. But we thank you for the download, everyone. We will be back next week with another Baseball America Prospect Handbook podcast. For Ben Badler, I'm J.J. Cooper. Thank you, everybody.